Hello and welcome to the Coast to Coast College Admissions Podcast. Each week, we talk about different college admissions topics and answer those tough questions you may be dealing with concerning getting into the college of your choice. We know how difficult this process can be, so each week, we try and make it easier to navigate. Now, here's your host, Anna Wren and Mark Hoffer. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Coast to Coast College Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Anna, with... Mark Hofer. And we're so excited to talk to you today about big fish in a little pond and what that means when it comes to college admissions. Yeah, Anna, this is uh, one of those times where I think another timely episode and uh, when students are looking at which college that they're really going to for sure, absolutely, and they're signing on the dotted lines and they're fielding all those acceptances and there are some other things that they might want to consider. I think we'll talk about those today. Let's kick it off with talking about, you know, what are the important pieces and what it actually means to be a big fish in a little pond. Because some people might think it means like being the standout one at a big school, but I don't think it necessarily means a big school. I don't think, you know, that is necessarily the case. But, you know, big fish in a little pond meaning being the top or I guess being elite within the surrounding, correct? Absolutely, yeah. I think that the big fish little pond, it doesn't matter how big the pond is, it's just that you're floating to the top. And that's usually academically. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, sometimes it can mean athletically. I think uh, when students are also looking at playing sports, that can be a completely different thing. If you want to be a high performer on a Division three team versus one somebody who sits on the bench at a division one. But I think we'll talk about academics today. Yes, that's a great way of, you know, talking about it, floating right to the top. Uh, you couldn't have said it any better. So when we talk about, you know, we've talked about so many pieces of the college admissions puzzle, and we've even talked about how to make decisions. But I think one of the things we have to talk about is making that final choice in terms of all the opportunities and assessing the future culture and environment of the school. So why don't you kick it off and talk about happy and healthy education? You bet. I, uh, I think that's one of the things that w- when, when students are evaluating their schools, we always, you know, we talk about best fit and we talk about things that are, you know, related to everything from um, do they have the programs? Is it in the right location? Is it next to a big city? Is it next to a small city? Um, all of the things that are associated with academics and social, you know, enrichment. But I don't know how often as, uh, you know, counselors that we talk with students about taking a step back and talking about some of the other things that are associated with how happy and healthy they are. And that directly relates to whether they're going to graduate on time or whether they're even going to be healthy and happy when they're on campus doing what they're supposed to be doing and which is academics. So I think one of the things that uh, I often talk with students about after we talk about the finances and financial aid and scholarships and they're looking at schools, I ask them about academic rigor and make sure that there is mission, you know, alignment with what they want to do or how hard they want to study and also what kind of things are tied into if you study real hard and get a high GPA, what does that mean? Or if you want to not study as much and get a low GP, lower GPA, what are the ramifications of that? And I think those are some of the things that we often don't talk with students about before they make their final selections. That's absolutely true. And I think um, the academic rigor is especially important because sometimes even if you're even though you're offered a challenge and a great opportunity, um, I think you have to consider how well you will thrive in that opportunity and that challenge. And I know that there's been different programs to help assess with that. And I, I think specifically about, for example, first generation kids. Um, and, you know, academically, they might not have been as challenged as they will be going to their future schools, but also socially as well. Um, but, you know, I think there's everything needs to come together for a student to thrive at their new school. So really having to place into account, you know, 
not only how hard are you willing to work, but, you know, if you're not willing to work that hard, you know, like you talk about the ramifications um, that could have potentially um, a serious impact on what you study and what you do in the future. Absolutely. I think one of the things that uh, when, when you're talking to a 17 or 18 year old, it's hard for them to, you know, take a lay of the land and look at the long term four years of, of what their college education is, is going to confront them with. And one of the things I think a lot of students who have focused really well during high school and they've worked really hard. And a lot of them, I know a lot of the students that we work with, they've worked so hard that they're on the edge of burnout. And so they kind of reached this goal. And now it's almost like we're asking them, well, if you want to go into an, do you want to go into an environment where not only are the academics expectations really high, but everybody else who's playing against you. And there is that competitive edge. I mean, if you go to Berkeley, you are going to find a very competitive environment academically. So if you're going to put yourself in that environment, do you want another four years of absolutely focused academic study to maintain those same high grades that you, uh, you maintain during high school? And um, I think those are some of the things that we really need to have uh, really consistent and, and deep conversations with students before they make that selection. Yes, and I think this especially applies to students who are thinking about graduate school because you're not, your journey is not over when you finish undergrad then. You still have potentially more competition um, and more academic rigor ahead of you. So, you know, you have to really think about do you, does um, the school that you're considering support, you know, you going to school there, but also um, setting you up for success when you apply for graduate school and thriving in graduate school? Absolutely. You know, the, you bring up one of the things that I think that is the most important point of um, the big fish little pond scenario, and that is you want to make sure that if you are thinking about graduate school or, uh, and, or, or even going into uh, an occupation afterwards, your GPA actually has a huge weight on where you'll be able to select and what kind of things you'll be able to do. This is especially true for graduate school. When you're applying, you want your GPA to be as high as possible. But if you've gone to a really competitive academic environment school, um, and you have a low GPA, you are going to have a harder time getting in to graduate schools, really good graduate schools. So one of the biggest um, arguments against going to an elite pressure cooker school is go to a school where you're going to be happy, you're going to challenge yourself, you're going to get good grades, and you're going to learn a ton, and that way set yourself up so you can apply for some amazing graduate schools. And I think that's one of the things that if you want to look at GPA and you want to make sure that you attain that higher GPA, that you look at schools where you're going to be academically really successful. That's a great point you raise. And, you know, it even references the conversation we had had with Todd um, regarding medical school applications. So, you know, listeners go back and read, uh, listen to that um, because as he had mentioned on that podcast, um, it is really important to have that high GPA and then also have the time to prepare for those standardized tests. So you really do kind of have to weigh like what, how will the school you choose for undergrad support your future? And I think you raise a great point about the GPA uh, for jobs as well, because it goes on your resume. And eventually, I think, you know, less emphasis is placed on the GPA, but when you're first starting out and you're hunting for that first job, you know, I think employers want to know that you have absorbed and obtained a strong academic foundation um, for the field that you're entering. Exactly. I've, you know, I've, I've run an internship uh, in aerospace and hired um, engineers directly out of school, both um, undergraduate and graduate schools, and for internships while they're in undergraduate and graduate school. And I'll tell you that more and more people in industry, and it doesn't matter what industry you're in, more employers are looking at what can you do for me? Not where did you go to school? 
Mm. Not what did it say on the outside of the school when, when you went on campus, but they want to know what can you do for me today and how quickly can you learn something that you're going to need to know tomorrow. And uh, it's not nearly the um, boutique and elite school name that's going to get you that job interview. It's basically what kind of evidence can you show me that you can do the job that I'm asking you to do? Yes. And so actually we got this topic because I'm reading um, Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath. And there's a chapter there and it's talking about big fish in a little pond. And they were talking about how the research opportunities in publication or publishing research was similar between lesser named schools or names that weren't as prominent as just as they were for Ivy's. So it's really not necessarily where you went, but like you said, what you accomplished. Right. And Malcolm, uh, in Gladwell's books, he talks a lot about the, the mental set that you take on in some situations that usually isn't attributed to your success. So if you're a big fish in a little pond and you're having some success, that success builds on it because you start thinking like a successful person. If you are in an environment where you are not having success, um, that can have the opposite effect. And you start to wonder and question yourself and your abilities. And I think that's one of those things where students who have uh, gone to a, a, a school where they are successful and they're happy, that builds on itself and you continue to have more success and you're happier. And I think those things carry over when not only you apply to graduate school, but also in your success that you bring to um, a workplace as well. So I think, yeah, it's uh, the David and Goliath, um, you know, analogy is, is a good one. You, you, you can have great success when you're an underdog. And um, I think those are things that carry over. And, you know, we can talk about even, I'm sure there's examples in both of our practices in terms of students who have chosen to be big fish in a little pond. So let's first talk about how some of the metrics or questions they should be asking as they consider the schools that they're looking at. Would you like to kick it off with the GPA? Sure. Um, one of the things that we, we use as tools as counselors, we we look at the, what's called the 50% band, and I think we've talked about this previously, and it's basically where 50% of the people with the, the same GPA and test scores that you have in high school, 50% um, of the people at that college you're applying to are going to be accepted. So if you know basically where you are going to fit in that group of people who are going to be on campus, if you're in that 50% range, you're probably going to have a similar grade point that you had in high school and college. And basically you're gonna to have to work about that same level to attain that same kind of uh, GPA. But if you go to a school where you are in the bottom 25% based on the metrics, your GPA and test scores, if you go to, to a school where you're the bottom 25% that are gonna be admitted, that would suggest that you are going to get to the success that you might want for graduate school and for a job, to get to that kind of successful GPA and have that success at school, you're probably going to have to work really hard. Just basically because the people you are, are going to school with are academically probably more prepared for that environment than you are. So it's going to be a pretty, pretty big hill to uh, go for four years. Yes. And that doesn't mean that that hill is impossible to climb. Absolutely. So I would say even when I first um, was getting ready to go off to college, I remember my father said to me, don't worry if you don't get straight A's. And I thought about it at the time. And I guess I had been getting straight A's for a long time at that point, And I had graduated valedictorian. And so the thought was like, shocking to me that he would kind of give me that <laughs> pass so to speak in college and basically he was trying to say and he kind of I don't think I don't know that they have this expression in Chinese the big fish little pond but he did basically say you're going to be in a place 
where there's a lot more fish um, that are probably better than you. So, you know, take some time to adjust. And sure enough, I think it'll come up later, but, you know, how well are you equipped to handle um, failure in your own um, understanding of it when you go to elite schools? Um, so even though, like, for example, my GPA was at the top and, you know, entering a very competitive school, potentially um, I would expect that I would still land near the top or have a comparable GPA. But, you know, first, first year of college was rough. And I still remember calling home and saying like, oh my gosh, I failed my first test. <laughs> but it was really hard because for some people it's like no big deal. But when you haven't failed and to get like a D or an F on a test when you've always gotten A's, it's, it's such a jarring wake up call. Um, it's very humbling too. And I needed it. But, you know, I was fortunate. I still ended up um, fine with a final GPA, but it was nowhere close to where I had landed in high school. But I think the lesson is that, you know, be prepared to be challenged. And at the same time, I think build some thick skin in terms of being able to handle um, things that might not always go your way once you get there. Yeah, I think learning that little bit of humility early in college and, and having that wake up call is extremely valuable for a lot of students. Um, Dean Kamen, who uh, is the inventor of the Segway and, and a lot of different amazing machines. He is uh, also the person who started FIRST Robotics. I, uh, he, he has a, a lab called Cayman Industries, and, and I was talking to him about when he hires engineers, um, does he always look for the people with the highest grade point? And one of the things he told me was that he said there's a sweet spot that he looks for, and that's that 3839. And it's somebody who it didn't come easy. They had to work to get that. And also he said people who get a 4.0 often, he says, you find that it probably was too easy for them. And they never really were challenged. And he said that sweet spot, that 3.8 to 3.9, somebody who works hard, learns a lot, thinks about things to be able to get to the right answer is often the person who is the, the more successful in a, in a professional and, and industry um, environment. So I think your, your dad was right. I think, you know, don't aim for that, that uh, 4.0 right off the bat. Um, aim to be successful and learn as much as you can. And for sure I did. Um, it was my <laughs> worst year, but, but it was, I got really good grades after that. It kind of whipped me into shape in terms of study skills as well, um, in terms of fine tuning them. But I think with that, you know, we have to talk about why the competitive GPA in terms of, you know, when you are with, especially I feel like in the STEM field, I, you know, that they kind of try to weed people out like pre-med kids and stuff like that with these difficult classes. So, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about that too? Oh, you bet. This is, this is one of the subjects that I talk with. So many students I work with because um, a lot of them are, are STEM focused and they're looking towards uh, careers in those areas. And one of the things that we really try to focus on when we're talking about schools is the importance of a GPA in getting into those specific schools within the college. So if you are looking to get into an engineering school or a business school, you have to apply a lot of times. If you haven't applied or initially to the school when you uh, gained admission, you have to apply as a sophomore in most schools to a school of engineering. We'll just take that for instance. And you have to apply against everybody else who is uh, working for those few and select spots. And when I say few and select, um, in some schools, only 25% of the applicants into their engineering program or their business schools are actually going to be accepted into the school. And that means 75% of the people who entered the school thinking they were going to be an engineer are not going to get in. And they have to make a different route for themselves. Either that's changing majors or changing schools. So I think that's one thing they absolutely have to understand. They want to be able to be in an environment with a school that they're going to have a high enough GPA to be competitive 
if they're applying to a school within the school. That's a great point. And I would also add that um, it's similar for uh, students, not just in engineering, but medical related or health science programs like nursing yep. and um, pre-OT and PT programs too. One of the things, uh, I, and I just, I just spoke with uh, some parents who had their daughter um, went into uh, a very well-respected uh, nursing school, well, a school that had a nursing program. And the expectation was she was going to go in and she was going to be able to go through the nursing program. Well, it was much like you said, there's, there's a culling of the herd, as it were. There is a, uh, there's a GPA that you have to maintain before you are accepted into the program. So even though she was accepted as a nursing student from the get-go, as the years progressed, the grade point funnel basically started kicking people out because people were not able to maintain that kind of grade point. So that's the other way that the grade point is really important and you wanna make sure that you're in a school that you can maintain the grade point to stay within the programs that you are hoping to follow. Right, because if you don't, then you have to consider transferring (laughs) or being unhappy in a different major. Um, that you didn't originally select. And we know what's bad about transferring, right, Mark? Not that it's bad, but the downsides. That is the unfriendly unicorn, isn't it? Man, I tell you. Once, you you know, you're in a college where you you know the food system, you know where all the good, you know, ice cream is available, and then you realize that this isn't the right school, and you're going to have to move uh, or transfer. There are so many things that are involved with that. Um, It doesn't mean that it's impossible. Students do it every year successfully, and it's something that you don't want to do, but it is, you know, it is an option. And the reason why a lot of people don't want to do it, the the big ones are, um, a lot of times not all your credits will transfer, so that means you'll probably be having to attack on at least a half year or full year more to gain all of the credits that are Mm -hmm. needed for that other school. And then there's the cost of getting reestablished and everything that goes along with, you know, pulling up and moving to another place and getting reoriented. So, And I think think not just money, but also the time involved uh, and stress involved in reapplying again. Absolutely. You have to reapply to college all over again. And (laughs) that's no fun. No, I hear you on that. Um, So I think the other thing to talk about is, um, some really great um, resources, right? So we talked about David and Goliath and kind of um, the Carolyn Sachs chapter. So if you guys want to go to a library and check that out. Um, But also even there was um, a re uh, there's quite a few articles online and we'll post them on the site where, you know, students that were accepted to elite schools, but chose to go to, less um, competitive schools instead still came out earning a comparable salary or the same salary as, um, as the students who attended the elite school. So I have to say that, you know, going to an elite school or not going to an elite school does not necessarily mean you will not be successful. Exactly. I think uh, that's one of the things, the statistics and research do not support that going to an elite Ivy league scholar, uh, Ivy league, Ivy league, college is necessarily the way to um, riches. And a matter of fact, if you look at the research and the statistics, um, you you can see that um, students who are more successful in their undergraduate endeavors, be that, you know, a small uh, liberal arts college that uh, they're successful in, And then they go to a, they apply to because they are competitive and have a good GPA and learned a ton. Um, They apply and they get into a really good graduate school. They actually are going to end up, first of all, they probably didn't have debt going in and they will uh, get an incredible graduate school education from an elite name. And that's when they set themselves up to make a a really good living financially. Um, And that's, you know, that's where I think uh, the numbers actually will, will talk about being a big fish in a little pond is, is a good thing. That's true. And I think, you know, I don't know if you have this in um, where you are, 
But in New Jersey, I have a lot of students that don't want to go to Rutgers, which is our local public school, because it's like, oh, it's, it's like in our backyard. <laughs> so they don't want to go there. But, you know, it's hard, though, because, you know, there are students who can get into elite schools, but not be offered much aid um, if they're depending on their family's financial situation, but then get like a full merit scholarship from the local public university. And then, for example, also be offered admissions into like an honors program in which they would get unique opportunities and resources. And I feel like, you know, I think you have to, students should consider that um, because, you know, those unique resources and opportunities might not necessarily come up at that elite school. Exactly. I, you know, the, we, we could, we could probably do a whole podcast on the uh, honors programs and, and the, the reason why that they are, if you want to go to a school where you can get into an honors program, you are going to get an incredible education. Um, something that uh, I think a lot of students don't give as much consideration as they should. Um, that's, that's one thing. I mean, if you're going to go into a, a college where you are treated at, at the elite level where you only have 10 to 12 people in a class during your undergraduate environment, I think <laughs> that is something to seriously consider. One of the things uh, we talked about, uh, some of this, we talked about statistics and research. I, I have to give uh, two books that if students are, are looking for, what are the real numbers that uh, go along with some of the big fish little pond theory? And that uh, one, of the, uh, one of the books I think a lot of counselors have uh, really championed and, and tried to uh, let parents and students know about is, is where you go is not where you'll be. Uh, it's not who you'll be by Frank Bruni. And um, Love that book. It's, it's a, it is a good book. It is research driven and uh, it lays out um, the real numbers behind Big Fish Little Pond and, and what they really mean and some of the things to consider. So if somebody wants a good reference, boy, that's a good one. Another one on the social aspects of uh, elite colleges is excellent, excellent sheep. Um, that's, that's another one. Um, and I think we can put those links on, on the uh, website. Yes, we will definitely put those on there. Um, so that, you know, everyone can read that. But I would also say, let's talk about kind of the personal and psychosocial aspect. Because okay. uh, we've kind of covered the academic. Um, but kind of like what you had mentioned before, I mean, being... I guess if you are conditioned or if you feel like you're not doing well, then it kind of sets you up to do that. Um, so what else is important to think about? Well, as a psychologist, I, I, I think a lot of the things that we don't necessarily give as much weight and credit to um, when students are selecting colleges, they want to, you know, if you're in an environment where you're not happy, you're, your performance academically is, is going to shadow that and it will reflect um, basically that you're not happy, you're not able to perform at the highest level. And I think that's one of the things that um, you really have to understand as a student, if you can put yourself not only in an environment um, physically, but also surrounded by people who are supporting you, um, those things directly have an influence on, on how successful you're going to be academically. So I think uh, if, if you take a step back and right to the very beginning of when uh, students start looking at the college process is ask again, why college? Why are you going? And make sure that that is one of the most important things and leading factors in your selecting a school. Because if you ask yourself, why am I going to college? And you pick a college that can support that, you're going to be a lot happier and a lot more successful. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, the thing to think about also is, you know, what are the downsides of not being happy? And I think um, it's hit more at home with me lately because of different experiences and different people I've come across where, you know, students come back from school and they, they, they come back with depression. Um, or anxiety mm -hmm. from loneliness and other things. And that's a lot harder to kick um, and, and kind of 
you know, resolve itself. So if you pick things for the right reason the first time, then, you know, you'll, you'll stay in school and, you know, be happy there. But I think even like, um, at least in our culture, sometimes where we are pressured to pick schools based on rank and reputation. And I'm talking about like the Asian culture when I say our culture. And the thing I have to caution parents is, but I know above and foremost, you want your child to be happy because it is just, if your child is not happy, nothing is worth it. You know, like you said, they won't thrive because, you know, you won't get enough sleep because you're working super, super hard, right? And when you don't get enough sleep, your brain doesn't work at um, its optimal function. Um, So I think it's a lot of things that go into it. But, you know, I think you really do have to weigh, you know, the real reason and the culture and the fit of the schools when you when it comes down to the decision time. Yeah, I, I have a little checklist that when uh, students at the beginning and, and at the end when they're making final selections and basically it's a checklist that identifies whether it has the social environment that they're looking for, are they gonna be personally supported by you know, the people around them, both you know, what kind of culture does it have? Spiritually, I mean, if you are going to need uh, things that that fill you up from a spiritual standpoint, are those things available? I, I even go down and I, I start ticking off things as, as simple as, are the foods that you need as comfort food, are they going to be um, available? And even though I kid all the time about, you know, finding the best grilled cheese sandwich on campus and where's the best ice cream, um, I do that basically because of that reason. It, are, those, are those kind of comfort foods available to students? And a lot of times um, they are, but uh, there are different qualities in grilled cheese, I tell you. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, so what are four realistic schools or logical, responsible questions that um, students should be asking themselves? Uh, you mean like, like uh, questions that will help them in that selection process? Yes. Well, I mean, the, the big ones that I go over, how much debt are you going to accrue at the, if you've attended the school at the end of four years, how much debt are you going to accrue? And the reason why is because that's something that is going to have a direct influence on your lifestyle after you graduate. So, and also another one is what's the return on investment, the ROI that's associated with graduating from this school. And each school will tell you Um, Matter of fact, it's usually online how much one of their graduates on average is going to make um, after they graduate from their school. So you can identify that. And you can also identify based on the major, what is somebody who graduates from X school with X major, how much are they going to make when they go into industry? Yes, I was just going to say that too. They do break it down by major. Yeah, they actually will tell you what the average is. So you can prepare for that. I mean, it's, it's information and it's a metric that's available. So when you start making those decisions, you know it going in with eyes wide open. Um, the one thing with debt is it's hard to talk to somebody who's 18 years old and say, okay, if you're going to be $100,000 in debt when you graduate, you do realize that if you're going to be a teacher, with $100,000 debt when you graduate, your lifestyle, the actual style of your life is going to be dramatically influenced by that debt, meaning you're going to be paying so much on that debt that a big, uh, a huge social night is going to be once a month maybe going to a movie. And that's just the reality. So that's something to consider. Can they actually get their head around that? And also the last question is, based on the return on investment, those metrics that the school says, how much you're going to make and how much tuition you're going to have to pay and what kind of debt, um, can you find a school that can supply you with the same kind of educational opportunity, but you're going to graduate with lesser debt? So that means your return on investment is going to be much higher. So have you looked at schools that are comparatively a better option or a better bargain? Yes. I would totally agree. And I would hammer in the point, like I've had a kid who unfortunately um, was trying to figure out if she could pay for college herself, because I don't know if you've ever had this with your kids where like parents will kind of say like, ah, if you don't, 
do this. I'm not paying for college. I don't know if they're, I don't think they're serious about that. But anyways, so the student just wanted to know, well, you know, can I pay it off myself? And can I just do it? And I said, well, you could, you know, you could take out the loans and do it yourself. But I said, you know, are you okay with, you know, not having a car or being able to buy a car for a few years? Or for example, being able to buy your own home one day? or paying student loans while your kids are going to college one day. And I think my favorite is, are you okay moving back in with your parents after <laughs> to pay off your debt? Oh, that's evil. That's, you know, that's, that's cutting right. But it's true. it's true. I agree. And that's, and I actually, I know, I know a number of people who have gone um, medical school and as part of their um, ability to pay back huge loans, they've actually moved back in with their parents and, you know, paid off their loan uh, a much quicker, but uh, that's one of the real, you know, that's the real lifestyle issues that are involved with large debt. Um, and like you say, are they willing to, I don't know about you, but I've had more parents who are um, basically letting their, their child know, letting their student know that they are willing to put in X amount of money after that amount the student's responsible for it. And I think that adds one more layer of complexity to the. Mm. Yes, I have had that actually. Or they've said, you know, um, because I think that encourages this student to graduate within four years. Yes. <laughs> Another little added incentive. The other one that uh, I, I know a lot with um, uh, parents who are saving well, using the 529 plans and basically mm. saving for a state school and their target is. I will be able to provide you with the amount of money that would pay for your tuition at a state school here and anything else. If you choose to go out of state, then it's on you, the additional, the additional fees. I, I have heard that as well. Um, I've also run into the unfortunate situation where parents have run out of all the money on the first child. Oh. Um, and had to tell the remaining children, you will go in state for college. Oh my goodness, boy, does that not, that leads a lot of uh, imagination to uh, only having one child so you don't have to go into all of that. Oh, yes, boy. yes it does. And it's a lot of pressure, I think, because like, that's going to be interesting for the family dynamics between the siblings as well. I was just um, going to say, you know, what, what happens to the younger sibling when, when they go, you know, when, when everybody's grown up and somebody says, why does your sister hate you so much? Well, because I took all our college money. <laughs> you know, I think that that's uh, like you said, that's an interesting dynamic right there. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is back in the day, um, my mom's one of nine kids. So the older kids would then have to make the money to help fund the younger kids. Oh. Um, so I don't know if there's enough gap for that family. Um, it was a family friend of ours where that had happened. And I was like, oh, that's a rough situation. Um, but it really does speak to the importance of planning well if you have multiple children. <laughs> exactly. So I have a question for you, Anna. You know, We've talked about having some of these, these conversations with our students about, you know, return on investment and basically psychosocial investment of, of a school and how it's going to support you and all that. But one of the things that I think is really difficult, and I'm curious to find out how you approach this, is when you talk with a student about, okay, you're going to an elite school and the academic rigor is really high. and you have a student who has, you know, high school has come pretty easy to them and they have really no concept of how hard and how hard they're going to work. So how do you, how do you get across to them? No, you don't understand. You are going to have to study six hours to eight hours a day to be as competitive as you have been in high school. I think it really is having that talk with them, right? And telling them that, you know, even though you only have classes, like each class is what, three hours a week, um, that, that the rest of the time is meant for them to be studying. Self-learning. <laughs> exactly. And how, how confident do you feel in your abilities to do that? Because I feel like sometimes when you have very bright kids, 
they haven't always developed the best study habits. When I, there's some, and I, and you, I don't know if you know, but I always know when I get those types of kids and I'll tell them that, you know, you're in for a rude awakening when you get to college. Um, so I'll try to usually try to help them work on their study habits before they get to college in terms of planning and not doing everything the night or the, the night before or morning of, um, because you just can't survive in college doing that. Um, so it is really just having that talk with them. And also, um, I have an example of someone who I know who hadn't gone in with the right study skills needed to keep up with the rigor and unfortunately failed out their first semester. Um, someone I went to high school with. So, you know, I think having these stories and being realistic about it is the best way to go. Yeah. And the failing out situation is, is one that, you know, is the worst case scenario where, and that sets up a whole psychological, and we talk about the psychosocial and emotional components of being successful. If you fail out of school, it is very hard to get back into the mindset of, of being a competitor and being successful um, and getting back on track. It, it definitely can be done, and many people have done it, but psychologically, it is it's pretty devastating. I think one, one of the things I, I'm curious, when, when you have uh, somebody who's 17 or 18, who's in front of you and you're having that conversation. And like you say, you can see it in certain kids who have been really successful and haven't had to try that hard to be successful in high school. And you know what's going to be right in their face. Um, What are some of the tips that you tell them that you think uh, will serve them well in that first year in making that crossover? I often tell them to um, be able to advocate for themselves and talk with professors and seek help. I mean, that's one of the things I loved about college is that, you know, professors have office hours. And even when I studied abroad at a very large institution, I still found a way to connect with my professor. Um, So make use of that if you're struggling. Um, Don't be afraid to go to tutoring because sometimes I think kids that have always done well and seen themselves as smart, um, kind of hesitate to get help from others. But you know, there's, there's no shame in that. And so it's really about, you know, when you get there doing whatever you can possible. Um, But before we get to that point, even as a junior, because that's when we usually ask for recommendations, I don't know when you guys ask. Um, It's a little competitive here in Jersey. But um, I'll say, you know, I once had a teacher tell one of my students, I'd much rather write a recommendation for a student who is struggling but seeking help and trying their best in my class than a student who is just flying by with A's and not really invested. Um, So my student was the one that, the first, the former, not the latter. So um, they were trying to reassure him. But I think that's the other thing to keep in mind is just because you're flying by, it can be... um, it can affect other parts of your application in terms of relationships and how teachers are viewing your work ethic. Yeah, I I can see that happening. And it's happened to to students I know when they've made that transition that if they don't, you know, advocate for themselves, that's one of the biggest things that that hole quickly becomes pretty deep and hard to climb out of. Have you ever had um, the opposite happen in terms of going to the elite school. So we're a student who um, actually found college too easy. I was just curious. I have never found a student, and you know, I've I've been lucky enough to know some incredibly brilliant um, young people, and I have yet to find anyone who has coasted through any of the extremely rigorous programs. Um, I have found those who, because they have found success, they overextend themselves in that they try to take on too much in that they are, they can have success in say like taking 12, 12 units. So they take 16 and then they take Mm. 18 and they find themselves. There's a point at which you have to have X amount of time in front of, uh, you know, the material to be able to um, completely understand it and, and be successful with it. And I think that's the only issue that I, I have found where um, those people who uh, can meet the challenge uh, don't find enough. I think they, they, uh, they will always be able to find more stuff to do so that uh, 
they are challenged at least to the level that they need. Great. You know, one of the things that uh, I've found students come back and tell me later uh, that has been really helpful. And I, I, I do, I have students do this because it was successful for me. And um, one of the things that I really need as, as, as when I'm a student is I need an environment that is the same. I need an environment that I has become a habit and, and a pattern. And so when I talk with students, one of the first things I say is, is when you get to, when you get to your campus, I want you to spend the first week finding the best place to study. And that's, mm. that's usually what's the best library, the one that feels the best, the one that has the least distractions for you, the ones that are, you know, eat closest, where, where's the seat closest to the bathroom, on down the line, all of those little things in dissecting what is going to be the optimal place for you to study. And when they find that, make that a habit every day for the first three months. And the reason why, if you can do that, and you basically are in that same seat every day at the same time, your brain basically knows exactly what it's there for. And that becomes a habit that a lot of students, they will take with them for the next four years. And, it, and a lot of students have let me know that those who have done it have found it to be one of the keys to their success academically. Wow, that's a really useful tip. I'm gonna to have to mention that to my kids. Well, that and ice cream, you know, <laughs> and, and the best ice cream for sure. Yes. So what's nearby? Um, any closing thoughts? Um, one of the things that I think uh, we've, we've talked about big fish, little pond, GPA, going into industry, going into graduate schools, applying and that kind of thing. But um, I'm curious. I know in the industries, especially in STEM, and industries that I've worked in, um, including, you know, art and, and music, those are areas where they could care less where the name of the school that you went to, you know, it, it, they don't care about what it says on the diploma. They really now want to know what can you do? What can you do for me? Um, I'm curious, do you know of industries where it's still a matter of, um, they want to see that prestigious name. They want to see that, that Ivy League uh, college name or name recognition for a particular industry. Do you know of industries that are still, you know, very much about that? Um, I was thinking about that, and it could be because I'm from um, an undergrad business school myself. But business school can be just because it's so much about the networking. Um, oftentimes, it's not necessarily what we know, but who we know. Um, in terms of securing that job. So, you know, obviously at some of the more prestigious schools, um, there, there can be more opportunities uh, in terms of networking with leaders and high-level execs. But what I would also say is that most universities across the countries have people in leadership positions in different um, companies. So, you know, as long as you're a great networker, it doesn't really matter um, which school you go to, but I would say business school is the only one because it's not as much focused on skill, um, but really on your ability to build relationships. Yep. That's, that's the one area that I was, I was going to say that I've definitely found business and finance are two of those networking. It's who, you know, a lot of times will open the door. And so it's still one of those areas where, if you know somebody who can open the door for the job interview and then you can go in and shine, but you still have to have an A game, mm -hmm. um, if you can get that foot in the door, it can be priceless. Um, so I think that's, that's one of those areas that uh, definitely. You and also, a good yeah. point, though. It's only good at getting you in the door, though, is what I found. Right. And the rest yeah. is up to you. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and one question similar to that for you, because um, I always learn something always fun culturally, uh, are there areas that you've worked, um, one of the um, counselors that I know uh, works with um, basically those students from China. And one of the things that she told me is 
and this is very hard for me to understand because it's, it's just not what I've grown up with and what I'm surrounded by. But she said that a lot of times the name brand schools directly influence the amount of salary that you will have when you go back to apply for jobs in China. Is this, is this something that you've dealt with? That is actually, that is a great point you raise, and it is actually true. So I, I think most of what Mark and I were talking about were for domestic students. But yes, for uh, China students and certain international students, um, yes, the, the reputation and rank of the school, and not even the rank sometimes, because I'll be honest, like, if they haven't heard of the school, it could be like... Um, I hate to use examples, but let's say Wake Forest or like a Brandeis, which are great schools, well-ranked, but not so well-known on an international level, um, it still wouldn't be enough. So they really do need, and I think that's why they are willing to spend so much on college admissions is because it does equate, you know, directly to the salary that they are paid and the positions that they get coming out of school. Yeah, so I think that's that's actually one thing that, we also need to, to keep in mind that uh, when we approach a lot of these things, it's from our American culture, uh, but also, and there's differences. Like, and it's funny because you, you mentioned Rutgers, and I actually have students who, um, because they've heard the name, um, they think that is absolutely a great school to apply to. Whereas, like you say, if it's your backyard school, it's not necessarily the one that's at the top of the list. So I think those things have not only their, their regional culture, but also we have to understand there's also a national culture. Oh, and that's, and vice versa too. Um, all my students think the world of Washington, Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have a lot of kids who just want to find sunshine. <laughs> I, I don't blame them. You guys get a lot of rain there. Yes, we do. Um, I would add one little note because it, it came up recently is I have students that sometimes on that college short list will say I want competition or competitiveness. And so yes. I'll usually probe a little deeper <laughs> in terms of, well, how competitive and why competition? Um, so, you know, is it there to motivate you or would it potentially discourage you and trying to find that balance in terms of, well, how competitive um, are you looking for? Yes, uh, competition and competitiveness uh, can have their own uh, definition for everyone. And I think, like you said, it's uh, interesting. It's well thought to uh, probe a little bit deeper and find out what their definition is. And I guess on this cl closing note, why don't we end with um, students who have gone to rigorous schools and loved it? Um, have you found that with your students? Yeah, and, and I think that that's one of the things, students who go in with eyes wide open and they're well informed of what they're getting into, they've got good study habits, um, they're looking for a challenge, they know that they're not necessarily going to 4.0, they know that they're going to be surrounded by people who are competitive but also intellectually rigorous. Um, you know, that environment for somebody who is seeking exactly those, those things that that is actually a great match when you can make that best fit match but it's not always the case yes well on that note thank you so much mark thank you anna thanks for listening to the coast to coast college admissions podcast where we make getting into college easy and fun don't forget to go over to itunes and subscribe to get updated each week when we release a new episode also, for more helpful college admissions information, visit our website at www.c2ccollegepodcast.com. 